Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. We are currently on Chapter 8, I believe. Chapter 8 of The Golden Fleece, of The Quest of the Golden Fleece. Let's continue reading. One second. Okay. Looking now at the county black population as a whole, it is fair to characterize it as poor and ignorant. Perhaps 10% compose the well-to-do and the best of the laborers, while at least 9% are thoroughly lewd and vicious. The rest, over 80%, are poor and ignorant, fairly honest and well-meaning, plotting, and to a degree shiftless, with some but not great sexual looseness. Such class lines are by no means fixed. They vary, one might almost say, with the price of cotton. The degree of ignorance cannot easily be expressed. We may say, for instance, that nearly two-thirds of them cannot read or write. This but partially expresses the fact. They are ignorant of the world about them, of modern economic organization, of the function of government, of individual worth and possibilities, of nearly all those things which slavery and self-defense had to keep them from learning. Much that the white boy imbibes from his earliest social atmosphere forms the puzzling problems of the black boy's mature years. America is not another word for opportunity to all her sons. It is easy for us to lose ourselves in details in endeavoring to grasp and comprehend the real condition of a mass of a human being. We often forget that each unit in the mass is a throbbing human soul. Ignorant it may be, and be poverty-stricken, black and curious in limb and ways and thought. And yet it loves and hates, it toils and tires, it laughs and weeps its bitter tears, and looks in vague and awful longing at the grim horizon of its life. All this even as you and I. These black thousands are not in reality lazy. They are improvident and careless. They insist on breaking the monotony of toil with a glimpse at the great town world on Saturday. They have their loafers and their rascals, but the great mass of them work continuously and faithfully for a return, and under circumstances that will call forth equal voluntary effort from few, if any other, modern laboring class. Over 88% of them, men, women, and children, are farmers. Indeed, this is almost the only industry. Most of the children get their schooling after the, quote, crops are laid by, end quote, and very few there are that stay in school after the spring work has begun. Child labor is to be found here in some of its worst phases, as fostering ignorance and stunning physical development. With the grown men of the country, there is little variety in work. 1,300 are farmers, and 200 are laborers, teamsters, etc., including 24 artisans, 10 merchants, 21 preachers, and 4 teachers. This narrowness of life reaches its maximum among the women. 1,350 of these are farm laborers, 100 are servants and washerwomen, leaving 65 housewives, 8 teachers, and 6 seamstresses. Among this people, there is no leisure class. We often forget that in the United States, over half the youth and adults are not in the world earning incomes, but are making homes, learning of the world, or resting after the heat of the strife. But here, 96% are toiling. No one with leisure to turn the bare and cheerless cabin into a home, 
No old folks to sit beside the fire and hand down traditions of the past. Little of careless, happy childhood and dreaming youth. The dull monotony of daily toil is broken only by the gaiety of the thoughtfulness, thoughtless and the Saturday trip to town. The toil, like all farm toil, is monotonous, and here there are little machinery and few tools to relieve its burdensome drudgery. But with all this, it is work in the pure open air, and this is something in a day when fresh air is scarce. What stands out to me from the passages that we just read is the way that Du Bois describes the the fact that the some of the first things that young white boys were would learn are some of the latter things that some of the first things that young white boys learn are some of the first things that young black men learn. I hope that that makes sense. So the thing, the experiences and the thoughts and the desires and the longings of seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old white boys was something that these young black men probably didn't conceptualize until they were 20, 21, 22, 23. When he talks about them, when he talks about the fact that it's not just simply that they can't read or write, it's that they, that the ignorance is not simply captured by saying that they can't read or write, that it's the fact that they're ignorant about the world. They're ignorant about modern economic organization. They're ignorant about the function of government and they're ignorant about individual worth and possibilities. These are all things that, that do not originate. These are all things that can, that spring forth from experiencing the world in a free manner from it, from your mind being able to be freed from uh, of course, reading and writing is a big component of that. But what people don't understand a lot of times when someone is illiterate, it's not just simply that they can't read something or can't write something. There are certain thoughts that they're not able to uh, able to grasp or there are certain there's a there's a there's a certain uh, there's a certain barrier that's put on you when you can't go from without when you can only pull from within. Uh, a lot of ideas that people have and ideologies that that's why ideas get formed and ideals get formed and ideologies get formed and belief systems get formed and is through reading things that other people have written down and reading about history and reading and learning about learning math and learning science and understanding how all of these things work without just sort of experiencing them. And even when we talk about experiences, the amount of experiences these black people had was even limited because they weren't free to go everywhere. They weren't free to uh, roam everywhere. And so I just think that, and, and, and that's the thing that's the most important to me about really understanding the experience of these black people in this time period is because there's a direct lineage from these people to uh, the people, the black people that exist today, the black communities that exist today. And a lot of the shortcomings that are experienced in black communities are not new. They can be traced back to the in the first generation after slavery. They can be traced back to the generations that were enslaved. And in order for us to be able to solve these problems, we have to know how all of these problems uh, were uh, manifested originally. So that is just one of the things that I think is important to point out. Uh, let's continue reading. <clears throat> Among this people, 
Oh, wait, no, I just read that. Sorry. The land on the whole is still fertile, despite long abuse. For nine or ten months in succession, the crops will come if asked. Garden vegetables in April, grain in May, melons in June and July, hay in August, sweet potatoes in September, and cotton from then to Christmas. And yet on two-thirds of the land, there is but one crop, and that leaves the toilers in debt. Why is this? Away down the Basin Road, where the broad flat fields are flanked by great oak forests, is a plantation. Many thousands of acres is used to run, here and there, and beyond the great wood. Thirteen hundred human beings here obeyed the call of one. Were, in, were his embody, were his embody, and largely in so. Okay, excuse me, sorry about that. Thirteen hundred human beings here obeyed the call of one. Were his embody, and largely in so. One of them lives there yet. A one of them lives there yet. A short, stocky man, his dull brown face seamed and drawn, and his tightly curled gray, his tightly curled hair gray white. Excuse me. The crops? Just tolerable, he said. Just tolerable. Getting on? No. He was not getting on at all. Smith of Albany furnishes him, and his rent is 800 pounds of cotton. Can't make anything at that. Why didn't he buy land? Humph. Takes money to buy land, and he turns away. Free. The most piteous thing amid all the black ruin of wartime, amid the broken fortunes of the masters, the blighted hopes of mothers and maidens, and the fall of an empire. The most piteous thing amid all this was the black freedman who thrown down his hole because the world called him free. What did such a mockery of freedom mean? Not a cent of money, not an inch of land, not a mouthful of victuals, not even ownership of the rags on his back. Free. On Saturday, once or twice a month, the old master, before the war, used to dole out bacon and meal to his Negroes. And after the first flush of freedom wore off and his true helplessness dawned on the freedman, he came back and picked up his hoe and old master still doled out his bacon and meal. The legal form of service was theoretically far different. In practice, task work or, quote, cropping, end quote, was substituted for daily toil in gangs and the slave gradually became a meteor or tenant on shares in name, but a laborer with indeterminate wages, in fact. Still, the price of cotton fell, and gradually the landlords deserted their plantation, and the reign of the merchant began. The merchant of the Black Belt is a curious institution, part banker, part landlord, part contractor, and part despot. His store which used more frequently to stand at the crossroads and become the center of a weekly village, has now moved to town. And thither the Negro tenant follows him. The merchant keeps everything, clothes and shoes, coffee and sugar, pork and meal, canned and dry goods, wagons and plows, seed and fertilizer. And what he has not in stock, he can give you an order for at the store across the way. Here, then, comes the tenant, Sam Scott, after he has contracted with some absent landlord's agent for hiring 40 acres of land. He fingers his hat nervously until the merchant finishes his morning chat with Colonel Sanders and calls out, quote, Well, Sam, what do you want? End quote. Sam wants him to, quote, furnish, end quote, him, i.e. to advance in food and clothing for the year 
and perhaps seed and tools until his crops is raised and sold. If Sam seems a favorable subject, he and the merchant go to a lawyer and Sam executes a chattel mortgage on his mule and wagon in return for seed and a week's rations. As soon as the green cotton leaves appear above the ground, another mortgage is given on the, quote, crop, end quote. Every Saturday, or at longer intervals, Sam calls upon the merchant for his, quote, rations, end quote. A family of five usually gets about 30 pounds of fat side pork and a couple of bushels of cornmeal a month. Besides this, clothing and shoes must be furnished. If Sam or his family is sick, there are orders on the druggiest and doctor. There, there are orders on the druggist and doctor. If the mule wants shoeing, an order on the blacksmith, etc. If Sam is a hard worker and crops promise well, he is often encouraged to buy more. Sugar, extra clothes, perhaps a buggy. But he is seldom encouraged to save. When cotton rose to 10 cents last fall, the shrewd merchants of Daltry County sold a thousand buggies in one season, mostly to black men. The security offered for such transactions, a crop and chattel mortgage, may at first seem slight. And, indeed, the merchants tell many a true tale of shiftlessness and cheating, of cotton picked at night, mules disappearing, and tenants absconding. But on the whole, the merchant of the black belt is the most prosperous man in the section. So skillfully and so closely has he drawn the bonds of the law about the tenant that the black man has often simply to choose between pauperism and crime. He, quote, waves, end quote, all homestead exemptions in his contract. He cannot touch his own mortgage crop, which the law puts almost in the full control of the landowner and of the merchant. When the crop is growing, the merchant watches it like a hawk. As soon as it is ready for the market, he takes possession of it, sells it, pays the landowner his rent, subtracts his bill for supplies, and if, as sometimes happens, there is anything left, he hands it over to the black serf for his Christmas celebration. The direct result of this system is an all-cotton scheme of agriculture and the continued bankruptcy of the tenant. The currency of the black belt is cotton. It is a crop always salable for ready money, not usually subject to great yearly fluctuations in price, and one which the Negroes know how to raise. The landlord therefore demands his rent in cotton, and the merchant will accept mortgages on no other crop. There is no use asking the black tenant, then, to diversify his crops. He cannot under this system. Moreover, the system is bound to bankrupt the tenant. I remember once meeting a little one-mule wagon on the river road. A young black fellow sat in it driving listlessly, his elbows on his knees. His dark-faced wife sat beside him, stolid, silent. Quote, hello, end quote, cried my driver. He has a most impudent way of addressing these people, though they seem used to it. Quote, what have you got there? End quote. Quote, meat and meal, end quote, answered the man, stopping. The meat lay uncovered in the bottom of the wagon, a great thin side of fat pork covered with salt. The meal was in a white bushel bag. Quote, what did you pay for that meat? End quote. Quote, 10 cents a pound, end quote. It could have been bought for six or seven cents cash. Quote, and the meal? End quote. Quote, two dollars, end quote. $1.10 is the cash price in town. Here was a man paying $5 for goods, which he could have bought for $3 cash and raised for $1 or $1 and a half. Yet it is not wholly his fault. The Negro farmer started behind, started in debt. This was not his choosing, 
but the crime of this happy-go-lucky nation, which goes blundering along with its reconstruction tragedies, its Spanish War interludes, and Philippine mat matinees, just as though God really were dead. Once in debt, it is no easy matter for a whole race to emerge. And so here is one of the things that we've been, that uh, W.E.B. Du Bois had been pointing out to us was the living conditions that he pointed, that they were in. He pointed out the, how the homes were put together. He pointed out how, what the inside of the homes was like, the, uh, the family, what the family dynamic was like in the homes. And now he's sort of speaking about what the work conditions are like. And what we see here is that the black people are in a situation where there is no room for advancement. And, and, and it's more plain in this, in looking at these specific examples we're given, but I hearken back to a book that I can't remember again, this is another book where I can't remember. I think this might've been either from the color of law or from black lives matter to black liberation. And in that book, they talk about how the majority of people who are born in the upper class will die in the upper class. The majority of people who are born in middle class will die in middle class. And the majority of people who are born in working class and lower class will die in working class and lower class. That there is a very small fluctuation of people who are born poor who become rich. And there are a very small fluctuation of people who are born rich who become poor and so on and so forth. And this Right here, what we've what we're reading about the black people in the South are experiencing, the sharecroppers are experiencing, is the is a perfect example of how difficult it truly is to rise from being born poor, born working class to become rich, because there are so many structures and systems and institutions that are set up to maintain the status quo, and. Also, the people who are rich are in a more advantageous position to be able to uh, to cheat and discriminate against people because they have the funds to. And I think one of the other things with that has been a reoccurring theme in here is uh, with the with black people being it, one of the other things that's a reoccurring theme within this book is the ignorance that black people have uh, when it comes to finances, their financial ignorance and their financial, the lack of financial literacy. And so. We see how the Freedmen's Bank collapsed and how that made black people stop being able to or stop having trust for banks and stop having trust for putting money in banks. And we, we see here how they weren't being encouraged to save. They weren't, you know, they were sort of being uh, hustled into buying these buggies that they weren't or into buying these. Was buggy the word he used? Buying these things that they buying things that they buying these cars that they were not going to be able to afford at a, eventually once they got like a surplus of money they were basically uh kind into getting these these cars and then also uh <clears throat> uh was was one other thing in here that I wanted to point out okay and then also they were being they were being exploited at the highest extent when it came to buying things from the merchant when it came to buying things in in the in these rural areas instead of buying things in town this man pay, spent two extra dollars which you know to us doesn't seem like it's a lot but at that time period was a lot more he spent two extra dollars purchasing these items for the merchant and that was exploitation he was being exploited he was being exploited specifically because he was black and because he was poor and that's something that continues in 
black history is the con the continued exploitation of black people because of the situations that they are in of being black and being poor. Uh, okay. So let's continue reading. Where do we leave off here? Okay. In the year of low price cotton, 1898, out of 300 tenant families, 175 ended their year's work in debt to the extent of $14,000. 50 cleared nothing, and the remaining 75 made a total profit of $1,600. The net indebtedness of the black tenant families of the whole county must have been at least $60,000. In a more prosperous year, the situation is far better. But on the average, the majority of tenants in the year even or in debt which means that they work for board and clothes. Such an economic organization is radically wrong. Whose is to blame? The underlying cause of this situation are complicated but discernible. And one of the chief, outside the carelessness of the nation in letting the slaves start with nothing, is the widespread opinion among the merchants and employers of the Black Belt that only by the slavery of debt can the Negro be kept at work. Without doubt, some pressure was necessary at the beginning of the free labor system to keep the listless and lazy at work. And even today, the mass of the Negro laborers need stricter guardianship than most northern laborers. Behind this honest and widespread opinion, dishonesty and cheating of the ignorant laborers have a good chance to take refuge. And to all this must be added the obvious fact that a slave ancestry and a system of unrequited toil has not improved the efficiency or temper of the mass of black laborers nor is this peculiar to Sambo. It has in history been just as true of John and Hans, of Jacquez and Pat, of all ground-down peasantries. Such is the situation of the mass of the Negroes in the Black Belt today, and they are thinking about it. Crime and a cheap and dangerous socialism are the inevitable results of this pondering. I see now that ragged black man sitting on a log, aimlessly whittling a stick, he muttered to me with the murmur of many ages when he said, quote, white man sit down whole year. Nigger work day and night and make crop. Nigger hardly gets bread and meat. White man sitting down gets all. It's wrong. End quote. And what do the better classes of Negroes do to improve their situation? One of two things. If any way possible, they buy land. If not, they migrate to town. Just as centuries ago, it was no easy thing for the serf to escape into the freedom of town life. Even so, today, there are hindrances laid in the way of county laborers. In considerable parts of all the Gulf states, and especially in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Arkansas, the Negroes on the plantation in the back country districts are still held at forced labor practically without wages. Especially is this true in districts where the farmers are composed of the more ignorant class of poor whites and the Negroes are beyond the reach of schools and intercourse with their advancing fellows. If such a peon should run away, the sheriff, elected by white suffrage, can usually be depended on to catch the fugitive, return him, and ask no questions. If he escapes to another county, a charge of petty thieving, easily true, can be depended upon to secure his return. Even if some unduly of even if some unduly officious person insists upon a trial, neighborly comedy will will probably make his conviction sure, and then the labor due the county can easily be bought by the master. 
Such a system is impossible in the more civilized parts of the South or near the large towns and cities. But in those vast stretches of land beyond the telegraph and the newspaper, the spirit of the 13th Amendment is sadly broken. This represents the lowest economic depths of the black American peasant. And in the study of the rise and condition of the Negro freeholder, we must trace his economic progress from this modern serfdom. Even in the bettered ordered country districts of the South, the free movement of agricultural laborers is hindered by the migration agent laws. The, quote, Associated Press, end quote, recently informed the world of the arrest of a young white man in southern Georgia who represented the, quote, Atlantic Naval Supplies Company, end quote, and who, quote, was caught in the act of enticing hands from the turpentine farm of Mr. John Greer, end quote. The crime for which this young man was arrested is taxed $500 for each county in which the employment agent proposes to gather laborers for work outside the state. Thus, the Negroes' ignorance of the labor market outside his own vicinity is increased rather than diminished by the laws of nearly every southern state. I think that that's important to point out, too. That's something that I had never heard about before. Uh, and just again, it just goes to show you the the how much effort was being put towards uh towards isolating black people from information, towards isolating black people from better opportunities and advancement, and but also keeping black people in their place, uh, which is, you know, like you, they're, so they're isolating them. They're not, they're making sure that they can't, that their brains aren't growing, their, their minds aren't growing. They're making sure that they don't know about things outside of this area, but they're also making sure that they, uh, that within this area, they stay in a certain role and they stay subjugated and marginalized in this role. Uh, but but also they don't want them to be in certain areas within this. They're trying to confine them to these specific county areas or specific back row country areas. But also they don't want them to infringe upon the white parts of those areas or to think that they can have the same privileges in those areas that white people have in those areas. So there's this. Uh, there's just so many different aspects to what it is that they that that these black people are experiencing. And let me see where we're at. Yeah, this is a little bit of a longer chapter. Uh, we're almost at 30 minutes, but we're going to keep reading. <laughs> Similar to such measures is the unwritten law of the black districts and small towns of the South that the character of all Negroes unknown to the mass of the community must be vouched for by some white man. This is really a revival of the old Roman idea of the patron under whose protection the new-made freedman was put. In many instances, this system has been of great good to the Negro, and very often under the protection and guidance of the former master's family or other white friends, the freedman progressed in wealth and morality. But the same system has in other cases resulted in the refusal of whole communities to recognize the right of a Negro to change his habitation and to be master of his own fortunes. A black stranger in Baker County, Georgia, for instance, is liable to be stopped anywhere on the public highway and made to state his business to the satisfaction of any white interrogator. If he fails to give a suitable answer or seems too independent or, quote, sassy, end quote, he may be arrested or summarily driven away. Thus it is that in the country districts of the South, by written or unwritten peonage, excuse me, thus it is that in the country districts of the South, by written or unwritten law, 
peonage, hindrances to the migration of labor, and a system of white patronage exist over large areas. Besides this, the chance for lawless oppression and illegal exactions is vastly greater in the country than in the city, and nearly all the more serious race disturbances of the last decade have arisen from disputes in the county between master and man, as, for instance, the Sam Hose affair. As a result of such a situation, there arose, first, the Black Belt, and second, the migration to town. The Black Belt was not, as many assumed, a movement toward fields of labor under more genial climatic conditions. It was primarily a huddling for self-protection, a massing of the black population for mutual defense in order to secure the peace and tranquility necessary to economic advance. This movement took place between emancipation and 1890. This movement took place between emancipation and 1880 and only partially accomplished the desired results. The rush to town since 1880 is the counter-movement of men disappointed in the economic opportunities of the Black Belt. Okay, and yeah, I think we're going to end this episode here, and then we'll finish this chapter on the next episode of Rafa Reading Daily. But the reason I want to end this episode here is because of this last passage that we just read. I think that's it's a very good stopping point. This speaks about, this is, they say that the Great Migration, which is Black people leaving the South and going to Midwestern cities, to Northern cities, and to uh, California, to the West Coast, that that time period, I believe, is from 1910 to 1940, and then another one from 1940 to 1970. And so, and also to towns. That's one of the things, uh, I just watched this video about the Great Migration, and they talked about that it wasn't just simply it wasn't it wasn't just moving to the west coast it wasn't just moving to northern cities or northern states and midwestern states it was also moving from these country rural areas to the the city and to the town areas within the south because of the sharecropping because of the exploitation because of these terroristic white mobs that were existing and and so to hear about this time period before the Great Migration, which was, and before the Great Migration, I think the statistic was 90% of Black people lived in the South. Uh, so to know that the movement that he's speaking about took place between emancipation in the 1880s, the movement to the Black Belt, and the movement to a few, to get to more towns in the South. And so you can see from the moment that slavery ended that Black people began to uh, try to migrate and try to move to find where in this country they could belong, where in this country they could carve out a life, where they could pursue happiness, where they could have freedom and where they could have liberty. And what we have uh, unfortunately found out as we sit here in 2022 is that there was no place for them to go to. As long as they were in this country, they were going to be exploited, oppressed and marginalized and subjugated. And it was not just them who were going to experience these things, but it was going to be their descendants who were going to experience these things. Uh, and so now today we still have uh, black people who are the descendants of the people we are reading about, including myself, who are trying to find uh, who are still battling for that freedom, for that liberty, for that ability to pursue happiness. Uh, and so, I, uh, again, this is a, an amazing read by W.E.B. Du Bois. It very it does a very good job of of filling in the time period between from emancipation to the Great Migration and 
Uh, I can't wait to finish reading this. So please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Remember that we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And I'll holler at you tomorrow.